This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I am your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful that you're here today. Today, I'm bringing you a little bonus episode. I was excited to read an article floating around the internet, and I wanted to bring the conversation onto the podcast. Peter Bromka and Esther Atkins wrote an article about the Olympic Trials Marathon and the qualifying time, there's going to be some discussions going on with USATF about what that's going to look like for 2024. The article that they wrote is on Medium, and it's called, What is the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon? This is a really well thought out article. It talks about the Olympic Trials qualifying standards and what that would mean for the sport if those standards change, if they do in fact get faster. And it also talks about the significance of what the Olympic trials was in 2020 with so many men and women on the streets of Atlanta and how exciting the sport has become and, and how the number of Olympic trials qualifiers definitely had a big impact on what that did for our sport and how that will change if less people are able to run this prestigious race. I had some questions. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I could go either way on if I think it should be tightened or not. Um, I think one thing I will say is that if it is tightened by a few minutes, that people would definitely rise to the occasion, just like they have before, just like they did when Boston uh, standards got tightened as well. Uh, we tend to rise to the occasions when the goal gets just a little bit harder. So I'm curious to see what the USATF will do. They have not come to any decision yet. I just saw a tweet that said they won't be making any decisions this week or weekend. So anyway, Esther is a three-time Olympic trials qualifier herself. Peter, his story has been all over um, podcasts, and he's written an amazing article about his journey. He has missed the Olympic trials qualifier by just two seconds. And he's written a really great article about that experience, the, the past two years and his experience trying to make the uh, qualifying time. Esther and I are working on convincing him to put that out in audio format, though, as well. Uh, both of these people on the show today deserve their own podcast interview one-on-one -on -one because they both have an incredible story with running. But we will save that for another day. Today, we are mostly just talking about that article that they wrote. So thank you so much, Peter and Esther, for doing this on the fly. I'm excited to get this out to the listeners this weekend. And yeah, we'd love to hear what you think. Send Esther, Peter, and I a tweet or Instagram message and let us know your thoughts on the article and the episode. All right. Enjoy my conversation with Esther Atkins and Peter Bromka. All right. Well, today on the podcast, we have a little extra something special with Peter Bromka and Esther Atkins. Welcome to the show, Peter and Esther. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Okay. So I was laying in bed, scrolling on my phone with one of my kids last night, and I read your article 
um, about USATF making decisions about the Olympic trials, field size. And immediately I thought this is like a discussion that I want to hear more about. But first, before we get into that, let's do just a brief introduction. Both of you are people that we could spend over an hour on on your your running history. And this is like a interview in its own right per person that we need to do. But for the sake of talking about the article, let's do a brief introduction. So Esther, if you just want to kind of give your like elevator spiel of who's Esther? Um, My highlights would be that I was a D3 runner. Um, I got recruited off a treadmill during orientation and ended up being a national champ in D3 in the 10K. That's awesome. Um, And then I lived in Vienna, Austria for two years after school and um, qualified for my first Olympic trials in 2010. Um, while I was living abroad. And um, then I joined Zap after that when I came back to the United States and ran for them for three years, um, ran the Olympic trials while I was there. Um, And then afterwards, I was coached by Terrence Shea and coached at Ryder University and then App State a little bit. Got married to my husband, Cole Atkins, who was also um, running for ZAP during those three years, and he ran for a total of six years. And um, now we're based in Greenville, South Carolina, and I am a personal running coach um, through McCurdy Trained. And you've run in three Olympic trials, right? Correct. So I ended up qualifying for 12, 16, and 20. Um, In the build up to 2016, I had kind of the highlight of my careers, um, or the highlights of my career. So I, uh, won the U S championships in 2014, um, ran 233 earlier that year at Boston in 2014. Um, and then I, uh, represented the United States at world champs in 2015. And then I placed 11th at the Olympic trials in 2016 and also 11th in New York, um, in 2016 and then 13th in Boston in 2017. And since then I've, uh, kind of been injured. So, uh, now I'm shifting the focus to coaching and hopeful that I will be able to qualify for 2024, which kind of plays into this conversation a little bit. Yeah, man, 2016, uh, 11th place at the trials. What, what a hot year to place 11th. Jeez. That definitely played in my wow. favor. I grew up in Richmond, and so um, I, you know, have some history with running in the in the heat, and um, knew a little bit more about what I was doing there. Love that. Thank you for the brief uh, rundown. And again, we're gonna have Esther back on because there's just so much more we can yeah. get into. Peter, let's get your let's get your history real quick. Oh, man, I just want to have lived through Esther's uh, trajectory. That's amazing. Um, I was also a Division three runner. I um, ran in high school, um, but also was a soccer player and then realized if I wanted to continue with team sports, I should probably focus on running where I was doing a little bit better than my soccer playing sitting on the bench. Um, and then I realized I came to understand that Division three had great camaraderie and probably I would have a chance to really participate and be part of a team which is still one of my like lifelong greatest running memories is being part of that team even though I wasn't a national champion I was mostly injured I sort of um, think back on those years as foundational to how I've been successful more recently because I spent so much time just kind of burnt out um, having a ton of fun with my friends but just always 
all the classic things like pushing too hard, trying to do all the things, um, just thinking I should do more mileage because that's what I guess the best people are doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I came out of um, division three and kind of just ran casually, you know, would run a couple days a week. I ran as a charity runner, the Boston Marathon in uh, 2005. I started like last in the whole field. And so um, and I qualified for Boston the next year and having run Boston twice, I thought kind of, that was the most exciting thing you can do in this sport from my understanding. And so I guess we're good. Like, uh, you know, I was in my twenties and there wasn't really any other boxes I wanted to check. Um, and so then fast forward a bunch of years and the Boston bombing happened. And after checking on some friends to make sure they were okay and just learning more about it, a bunch of us friends decided, you know, Boston 2014 is probably going to be this amazing year. Um, let's all try to qualify. And we were all decently fit. We were able to qualify. I injured myself in the process. Um, so <laughs> like it was just the focus of, um, let's get there. And it was an incredible day. Um, I agree. And it just, <laughs> you know, I could, um, I like almost choke up if I start talking about like the, some of the moments going along the course that day. But then that got the ball rolling for me to, um, I ran Chicago 14 and then, um, you know, fought, unexpectedly uh, just kept pulling at that thread and five years down the road uh, almost qualified for the Olympic trials this past winter. Um, So came close three times, Mm -hmm. um, missed by two seconds a year ago. Mm. And uh, (laughs) it was totally, it's been in hindsight, an amazing experience. Um, But it's, uh, it brought sort of where this article that we co-wrote came about was it became this thing that I focused on so much that I then, you know, end up obsessing the details. And I think Esther and I had never met, but I started to, at some point, toss out some idea or applied, replied on Twitter to someone else's idea. And then Esther replied as well. And I thought, oh, this person is like not trying to start a fight on this you know, website. <laughs> <laughs> this like has some thoughtful opinions and has a lot of experience. Um, let's, so that's how we struck up a conversation at some point this past winter. People fight on Twitter. <laughs> what? Oh, no. Yeah, you may may have noticed that even on this discussion, <laughs> there's been a bit of a a bit of a fight. So I'm learning. I love Twitter, and I would I don't know that I would have seen this article without it. Right, and I enjoyed your tweet this morning about your husband being too loud on the phone because I can relate. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, do you always speak in that boisterous of voice? <laughs> and can you shut the door? I get it. Could though. you stop using speakerphone? <laughs> I don't know. Like I could be, I'm probably talking really loud right now, but I'm also shut inside a closet. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So let's get into the article. I mentioned I was I was scrolling through Twitter. If y'all aren't on Twitter, come on, come on back to the dark side. Where <laughs> Esther and Peter and I are still hanging out over there. Um, kind. Yeah, and I I read this article, um, and I just thought this is so thought provoking, and it's something I've thought about a lot, and I think that. Um, it has a lot of parallels to Boston as well, like the qualifying times for Boston. Um, so let's talk, if one of you, I don't care who, wants to kind of describe what the article, like the gist of the article, what is the article we're talking about? About. So um, I had started to write some just prose about thinking about what the trials could be because what had been occurring, so the title of the article is What is the Olympic Trials um, U.S. 
Olympic Trials Marathon, um, which is meant to be sort of a obvious question at the um, at the surface, but also invite people to think more broadly about what it could be. Because um, I think that at the highest level would be the gist of what Esther and I are trying to say, which is it is quite literally a race that's hosted every four years. The, the top three qualifiers in both men's and women's races make it to the Olympics. Um, but it's obviously something more than that. And the something more than that has shifted uh, a bit over the years. And sometimes it's been great. Sometimes it's been small and no one knew about it. Um, and so I had started to think about almost as a reaction to the women's field and how many women were qualifying. Um, I thought that was great. People were qualifying and there seemed to be a ton of excitement. And I think Esther and I connected around this idea. We're hearing grumblings of people being saying, oh, that must be the exception. Um, that'll obviously be something that'll be corrected for. Um, in the past, to get a little technical, there was a rule that said the U.S. qualifier could not be more difficult than the world qualifier. Um, and so then this past year, the Olympics, in an attempt to modernize and introduce new sports and looking at headcount, they actually massively tightened their qualifier for the Olympics. So if you're one of the best in the world, um, particularly from another country where maybe there wasn't a lot of competition, now it's very difficult to get in. Yeah, um, what are those times, can you say? 229.30 and 211 flat. Okay. Is that correct? Yeah. It sounds right or is it 211.30? I think it's 211.30 maybe. Yeah. 211.30. And there's also some, um, if you finish in the top five at a gold lit label race, I believe. Um, so then there was an actual fear that you top 10 the and then top five at a gold. Top five. Yeah. Top yeah. 10 at a world major and top yeah. five at a gold oh, yeah. label, I think. And what's Which a gold label? Uh, there are some, so they have to have a certain number of uh, representatives of different countries. Okay. Uh, in order to achieve gold label with IWF and they have to have like, you know, IWF certification and whatnot, certain number of participants, all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, for instance, Roberta Groner got her a standard by doing that. And was that Rotterdam or yeah. somewhere? So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you gotta be, so that by changing that standard, it meant that by, um, the USATF, you know, United States track and field was not going to have harder standards than that. Certainly, um, we ran the risk of having too small a field, um, and just wanting to make sure that first and foremost, the country sends three great athletes. Mm -hmm. um, but then it really does throw into question, you know, what would the the if there's an A standard, which is automatic qualifier, and then a B standard, which is provisional qualifier, um, then what would that be? And some there's I'd say an undercurrent of traditionalism in the sport and some people say, oh, we should just do things how they've always been done. And I was not a numbers person, but Esther pointed out to me like, there's one way they've always been done. This thing has sort of fluctuated. The size of this race has sort of fluctuated and the intent, um, I forget, Esther, correct me, there was some sentiment of trying to draw standards that had something to do with the hundredth place finish at a previous yeah i think they wanted to aim to get like 100 qualifiers or something and or more than 100 but not less and so then using the hundredth place of the previous mm -hmm. standard would probably or the previous cycle would probably do that right now granted 
COVID could happen and then nobody can race and that would throw everything off. But yeah, luckily that so, didn't happen before. <laughs> yeah. So then Esther and I were basically trying to, we said, um, we started writing this actually in February mm. when um, we were thinking about, you know, this event's about to happen. Mm -hmm. We think it's going to be great. It turned out to be just an incredible day. Um, but how do we make sure that someone is speaking up for the sentiment that we think uh, is thinking more creatively and more broadly about, um, you know, what this event can mean for a larger community than just a few dozen runners? Um, and how does it sort of uh, serve? How can two things be true? It can both pick the team and be an inspiring event. And so we started to lay out some of the arguments for making it slightly larger rather than smaller. Um, and then Esther had awesome ideas about different formats. I think your husband Cole had um, yeah, a lot of the details about the third idea. The first, so the first was sort of like um, the way it's standard is um, with a time qualifier and just making sure that there, so this year there were, uh, I'm not as good with numbers, the 420 women and about 260 men. And then, so saying like, oh, is there a way to bring those more in line with each other? Um, mm. I had this idea of just saying it, it's the thousand. It's like 500 men and 500 women and finding a, you know, sort of a running list um, for, for a descending order list of who gets in. Um, like the 500 and, fastest qualifying times in the country, like the 500 yeah. fastest people in the country on male and female side. Yeah. Exactly. But then and, when I was discussing that idea with my husband, Cole, um, he was like, well, that ends up sending everybody to CIM, you know, because yeah. that's where you can. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like that actually, it all actually reduces accessibility because if you live in the Southeast, you know, like it's pretty expensive to get yeah. to California um, and it's not optimal. Whereas you could probably, um, we thought it would actually bring more excitement to a lot more races if we could somehow spread out the number of qualifiers over maybe 10 or even 30 races um, and say the top 10 out of every race uh, or top 15 out of every race gets to qualify for the Olympic trials. And then if somebody has already qualified, then you skip down to the next person or if somebody's international then you skip down to the next person. Um, but it could be, you know, a, a fun way to spread out some of the energy of um, qualifying for the Olympic trials and, and also like give people standards, like maybe a woman could, run 254 and get into the Olymp or Olympic trials qualifier field, yes. you know, um, which maybe, you know, spreads out the concept of Olympic. It uses the word Olympic way mm -hmm. too far, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like enough people get confused when I say I, I made it to the Olympic trials three times and they're like, you're a three time Olympian. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Not <anywhere close. laughs> but I think it's, um, it's a concept that could, include more people for sure because the 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 topic at hand here is that the usatf is meeting to decide what the standards are to qualify for the 2024 olympic trials for the marathon right correct yeah okay. and it, to be clear we haven't heard officially that anything um that they're changing I anything that they're going to change anything i think there was just this um and maybe i hang out with too many kind of like old timers but there was just this uh, sentiment I was hearing of like, well, they'll bring that women's time down. Too many yeah. women have called. And that started started our conversation around, well, well why? Um, and what, again, like with the state, 
this question at the headline of the piece. What is it and what is it meant to be? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, here's a question just like totally curious your thoughts on this. I have an opinion and I want to hear yours first. <laughs> 245 for women. Two night is it two nineteen for men or two eighteen? I know no, you know exactly, Peter. <laughs> two nineteen flat. Okay, two nineteen flat, two forty five. Is the men's or the women's standard harder? Men's is definitely harder. Yeah. Okay. Hundred percent. No, yeah, yeah. no. Why no is that? Why is that? It was made by the World Association. It was made by IWF, not or whatever they're called, World Athletics now. Um, it was not made by the United States. So if you look at a global aspect of of distance running, there are more men in the world who run than women. Mm. Now, in, a, in America, we actually probably have more women who run than men, at least on a recreational level um, and possibly on an elite level. It's I don't know. But um, anyway... I, it's because of those. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. I've never like, known that because uh, I've always wondered. I'm like, why uh, is that two night? That two nineteen is like insanely faster and and more tough than the two forty five for women. I mean, I think there's meaningful things to think about in terms of access to the sport. Not that long ago, mm. like, so I was, you know, in my lifetime, they said women should be able to run a marathon at the Olympics. Imagine that. Uh, so then Joni wins. She then wins the gold medal. And so you just imagine, you know, she was a total trailblazer and a total outlier. Um, so if you look at it from a math perspective, they were just maybe, let's say, 20 years ago, 2000, mm -hmm. going like, let's find some numbers that yield a field that's about similar size. And then you roll it forward two decades yeah. and women are like, wait a second, we can do this. Um, we're going to support each other. Like that's where the numbers come from. And so like men have for many decades, um, the math has, it coincides with behavior, like have been, have known that they had access to being a marathoner and have, mm. you know, a certain group of them worked to be the fastest. I th think there's just exploding, um, you know, realization and access to sport for women. And I think we're seeing that wave crest. Um, and so, yeah, it was about numbers, but it was about what we're seeing is it's, it was about access, I think. I love sure. that. Yeah, that's that's a really excellent point for sure. Um, and so part of the, the article you guys talk about, and this is what I really love about it, is that um, that 245 was a number that ended up being for women, a lot of women attainable, but they had to work really hard to get there. And what that yielded was a bunch of people like me who are nowhere near that, but really excited to watch these other women reach these goals. Someone runs a 255 and they're like, okay, wait, 10 more minutes. Can I do that? And to just see this evolution of them like stepping up to that next level and rising to the occasion, like having this big dream goal, knowing that no, I'm not trying to make the Olympic team, but to to get that Olympic qualifier is like a a lifetime goal. And it, and as you mentioned, like Atlanta was so exciting and so fun. And I don't think it would have been that had so many of our peers, you know, people who were not like Des, Molly Huddle, like these these elites that we watch and cheer for as the professionals in the sport, but so many people that are, we could see ourselves like running side by side with, you know, are going to run in this race. And those crowds were 
insane. So tell me your thoughts on that. I mean, um, yeah, it's, I will say that my experience of um, meeting people who had competed in the Olympic trials. So I remember I worked at all American um, cross country camp, which is put on by the NC state coach and um, our coaches. And I met like a handful of people there who had competed in the Olympic trials. And I realized for the first time that they were like normal people. And mm-hmm. that was kind of what planted the seed. I had in the back of my mind that like, you know, I'd run a 246 already um, as my debut marathon. So I was like, but this was in 2009. So the window hadn't opened yet in 2010, but that just like really kind of fueled my fire, um, to even compete, continue to care about the sport at all. Um, and I know that, you know, I knew Roberta Groner and Jeanette Faber both when they were at the stage of like, just being interested in the sport mostly because a, yeah, they had friends who ran, but they also like knew that this was a dangling carrot out there that they like really cared about making the Olympic trials. And both of those women went on to also make world teams in the marathon. Like all three of us were kept in the sport because there was this dangling carrot and ended up far overachieving. Like Jeanette ran 232 and what has, I mean, uh, Roberta's run 228. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Um, I ended up running 233. So it's like, people end up way overshooting there's there are people who like you know come from a 255 and already ran a 10 minute PR and think they can do it again you know um but then there's other people who like you know like us where we don't know where our capabilities are unless we actually give ourselves a chance so that's what I think is the lost um you know that's what could really get lost if the standard becomes something like 235 or whatever is that yes you will have people elite NCAA runners who are definitely going to move up to the marathon because it seems like an achievable carrot, but there aren't going to be mothers of three who decide to start running seriously again because they have this like 245 to chase, you know, like 235 would have seemed impossible to most people unless you've already kind of like ticked off a few other um, checks along the way, you know, like it's kind of like there's there's this huge huge chasm between qualifying for Boston and qualifying for the Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. And I think anything that we can put between the two would be really helpful for the sport. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. And I saw Tracy Green responded to your tweet about your article. Kind of, I think she's, I think her PR and Tracy, forgive me if I'm wrong. I think it's like 256 or something like that. Um, and she kind of was mentioning how she's kind of in no man's land. Like, Qualifying for Boston is not something that is difficult for her to do, but qualifying for the Olympic trials kind of like super far fetched. So like what happened, what's the big goal for those middle people? And I would probably be on the slow end of that middle, those middle people and my PRs 311. So like I kind of understood what she was saying. Like my pie in the sky goal would be to break three hours in the marathon. But like, yeah, where's the home for those people? Yeah, I think there's a, a, what I think you're pointing out is that softening middle, um, this is just a sport and it's a Mm -hmm. recreation, it's a hobby for a lot of people. Um, My friend who's a golfer says, you know, there's a thing called the Q school where if you, I don't know much about golf, but if you golf at a certain level, you can qualify to then go to the qualifying tournament. And, you know, it's always that dream of like, maybe I'll have a great weekend and then I could get my pro card. Like it's this it allows people to focus their passion um, and just get, and then 
so it's an individual. And then as we see across the internet and then we saw it in Atlanta, there just becomes this community groundswell. Because, I mean, if you make the track trials, you are among the top two dozen in the country in an mm-hmm. event. It's just, it's so far beyond. Um, so what we've seen is just by sort of like maybe literal thing on the road, they're like, oh, we could let these other people run with us and it um, doesn't really cost anything as long as Esther and I got into a lot of like the logistical details that like you don't want to trip up um, your most elite athletes and make their life complicated. Yeah. But it, if it doesn't cost, you know, it gets into a lot of um, debatable details about what it does cost. Um, but then it opens up. There's I think of um, like I'm a pretty slow 5K runner relatively. Um, and there's men who are a minute faster than me in the 5k who are, are far off from ever making the trials, uh, for the track. They're just not going to make it. Um, but they can, you know, if they train, they can make it into the marathon, which is this like communal square of a, um, an event where we're all, you know, there's more excitement at these major marathons and then, um, for people of all paces. And I think that sort of like culminates every four years in this event. Um, and it, it can be great even if it's small, if you're a super nerd, like I went to the New York Central Park um, event um, in 2007 when Ryan Hall won and it was on the circular course and like fans are running back and forth. It was like a very nerdy cross country meet um, and it was super exciting, but it wasn't like a, even being in New York City, it wasn't as exciting as what we saw in Atlanta with just more people, more fans from all over. And part of that was that it was a men's only event. Yes. And it had even fewer participants or had maybe the same number, probably fewer participants than it did than we did in in Atlanta on the men's side alone. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Do you guys have thoughts on what USATF is, is trying, is wanting to do? Wait, do we know what they're proposing so far? Yes. Do you know, like, are they, like, do you think they want to make it faster, the standards? So the the assumption that they're going to make it faster is a fair one because they already did okay. in 2016, right? You know, like the original standard for 2016 was 243. Yeah. So we would assume, it's very fair to assume that at least they're going to go back to 243 now that they have the option of slowing it down from 245. Or, sorry, slowing it down lowering it from 245 maybe you can answer this question why did they make it 243 to 245 in the first place because they weren't allowed it was what peter mentioned earlier is that they weren't allowed to have a faster standard than what the world athletics standard okay. is okay i don't know why yeah, this so is so confusing the olympic standard. <laughs> yeah so the olympic standards they changed the olympic standards in 2015 and said now we're gonna we want to broaden the the olympic okay uh, field and so we're going to make it 219 and 245 and we already had had 218 and 243 for okay. 2016 okay okay so and then they went back but, and they tightened the olympic standards correct yeah. in yeah, the yeah, next yeah. cycle mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah okay okay for and so these numbers have moved around i mean it was when i first got out of college it was 222 for men um which at the time i thought was like totally insane and i didn't think it had anything to do with me um <laughs> and so you know, the numbers have moved around for how many they let in. Um, and then as, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure a, how the world um, athletics thinks about it and how they draw their lines. And then, I mean, I think Esther, it should go be said that 
Esther and I would love to hear that they're like, oh, no problem. You didn't need to write an article. Like, this is already <laughs> ready what we're thinking. And I, I reached out to people um, in other, like, running media and said, like, is this something you're thinking about? And one woman I respect was like, I don't think anyone I know of who is seriously thinking about making it um, more exclusive. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, maybe that's true. That'd be wonderful to hear. Um, but I think there was this general sense of it has been faster um, now they have the permission to make it faster. Exactly. And then I think what got my goat was just like this sort of like old school, like it should be small because just cuts. Yeah, yeah. Well, because the selection is all that matters is what yes. kind of we're getting at. And yeah. we don't believe that that's true because exactly. there is this global effect that that it has it can have on the depth of American distance. Running. And I would say quite simply, there's an A standard and a B standard yep. and you could get rid of the B standard if that's what you're looking mm. for. You could just say there's no need because those people don't qualify. They don't play into our truly top talent. I mean, Esther and I would say it's horrible for talent, uh, fostering talent and such, all the reasons. But yeah. um, you could say similar to the track, um, we only need to cater to the needs of two dozen, three dozen people. And I, I mean, I wouldn't agree, but I could understand that logic. The moment you say, we're going to have a B standard. Uh-oh, we just lost him. Come back, Peter. If we have a B standard. He was making a good point, too. I know. <laughs> well, I know. And so that if we have to, I might have to call, like, he might have to call back in. All right, friends, we had a minor interruption, a little mess up here. So we're going to jump right back into the conversation. So, um, Peter, you were talking about um, the moment you say we're going to, have a B standard. And I don't know if you want to take it from there and we can kind of finish the conversation, that part of the conversation. Yeah. I think what Esther and I were just trying to point out in our piece is that from the various, very highest level, there are, are really are two goals to the event because it is about picking the team. Um, but because there is a automatic and a, um, an A and a B standard preliminary qualifier, the moment you have a B standard, you're sort of opening the door to the, the event really is about more than just the top 20, 30, 40 athletes. Um, and sort of, it always has been, and that's, it acknowledges, having a B standard acknowledges that, wait, it is a road race and you could have more people out there. And so what we're trying to dream of and just like open up some options is just how do you um, certainly like control for having like the best athletes on the line and picking the best team, but then also make the most of once you have this whole road race together and all the fans are coming out. How do you make the most of that? And we felt like Atlanta opened a lot of people's eyes to what it could be. And we're saying like, let's keep heading in that direction. So I was trying to think about how, um, because I write a lot about running, like what are we really saying? And it, the whole idea reminded me of when you throw a birthday party for a friend and you know, the really the important thing is that the birthday boy or girl feels celebrated. They feel special. Um, but the moment you're like going to have everyone come together and then, you know, as you get a little bit older, you think, how many more friends could we invite? Maybe this could be an enormous party. Um, and so certainly you never want the birthday boy or girl to feel like they didn't get celebrated. They're neglected. But you can also have a lot of people walk away from a raucous party thinking that was awesome. I'm so glad that Lindsay threw a party. Um, yeah. So we're just trying to think about how do you make this sport that we love into an even bigger party? Yeah, and I feel like we, um, you know, we run into issues on the track where you have like a very elite field and you cannot 
have more than two dozen athletes on the track at the same time or you can't have as but so many um heats of the 1500 or the 800 so you really kind of have to narrow things down on the track whereas on the roads first of all to be honest there are a lot more adults that run on road races than there are adults who run track races um and so in some ways like not only does it make sense because you have a road race where the person who's finishing 200th is not getting in the way of the person who's finishing first. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have this much larger population of great, you know, runners in the country that I believe should be recognized. And we kind of have come together to say, hey, we think that the Olympic trials could be that status marker for road racers in general. Um, and you know, triathlon has their pro cards and, um, you know, there are different kinds of status markers. And we think that that's one of the things that one of the purposes that the Olympic trials can serve. Yeah. I mean, I think that we all agree that what happened in Atlanta was super special and, um, an important step in like the, the, um, moving distance running forward in in our country. Like it was so exciting for all of us to see that. Uh, my question is, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this is if they, if the USATF does meet and change those standards by like, say three or four minutes. So it goes from 245 to 242 or something like that. Don't you think that that would just push those people who ran that 245 or the people that have that as a goal to rise to the occasion like they did when it was changed from 248 to 245? I think it would um, definitely, but I think there's also an incentive of the A standard particularly if we do go with either the 500 or like the B standard, A standard as there typically was before, um, there still would be an A standard and that A standard would still be really attractive. So I think if we set the A standard as 235, we're still going to have more women running under 235 Mm. than ever before. That's cool. Um, And I think think that still would serve that purpose. And the other thing about the 500 idea is that maybe 500th place isn't running 245. They're probably running 243, honestly. So um, I don't think that it's really necessarily, it's kind of letting the depth of U.S. running dictate what that B standard is. So that's kind of a cool afterthought of of the 500 idea. I definitely think, um, and I'm forgetting if this was before we got cut off, like um, someone looking at the data should say like whatever the women's data is now um, is just the beginning. Mm. Like mm-hmm. we're just getting going. So I think the whole mass of women who ran like 244, 243, they're like proof to them and they're all their friends that it's possible. I mean, I think you'd think a lot of them couldn't improve and then they have um, any number of friends who think, well, like, if she can do it, maybe I can do it. I, I wonder, you know, we saw women improve like so much. Um, if you made it 240 and and you're a 305 marathoner, it's always going to be daunting to cut off 25 minutes. <laughs> you know, not that you can't, because I think we're just scratching the surface, but it it's intimidating. Um, and as we've, you know, the men's standard has just been around longer, and it, mm-hmm. it's just been like tinkered with, tinkered with, um, down, down, down. That it's not that. I mean, there's just general excitement. I think Atlanta will certainly feed into more people being interested and being like, I'd love to try to make that meet. But, you know, the, the men's standard has just um, like 
it's sussed out a, a certain number. Um, and it's unlikely that a mass of men are going to suddenly jump over it. Um, mm-hmm. But it used to be 222. And I've had, I mean, I don't think, it's funny when I, I'm writing all about this, and it's not that I think like a certain subset of amateur male runners is like the biggest problem in the, America, <laughs> thing that we really need to worry about. But you know, a lot of them are my friends, and they're like, "Oh, I ran like 228. If it was 222 or 221, like I might have stuck with it. But man, 219 just seemed, yeah. and it, it was 218 for a bit. Like it just seemed kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'll I'll move on. So um, it's I I choose to focus like less on exactly those individuals and more like the excitement. A lot a lot of people said, man, there was just these families there for the mm-hmm. women that were, you know, sort of ir- quote unquote irrelevant to the race. And it was just like all decked out in t-shirts, signs and so just cool. like, this is your moment to shine. So, so super cool. Yeah. So I think that part of your question though, was saying like, it was so exciting what we saw in Atlanta, but what was really exciting to me is actually what we saw in the years prior to Atlanta. Yes. You know, the there were so many people reaching for it and it's not just like Peter is just an emblem of that like whole concept of the number of people who were reaching for it and some of them achieved it and some of them didn't and it's still really fun and it gets people invested in the sport in a different way. I love that point. That's so true. I mean, I, I think back to 2014 when I, I don't know if anybody listening remembers Katie Edwards, but um, she's the mom of three. And when she was working really hard to get her OTQ and she ended up running like a 241 in Boston, mm-hmm. she didn't even end up going and running the trials because, you know, life mm-hmm. happened. But like, I remember being so emotionally invested in her race and seeing her accomplish that goal. Um, question on what you were just saying, Peter. And you guys might think this is a silly question as well as people listening, but I'm just going to ask it because I, I, was, I was thinking about it as you were talking and perhaps listeners were. Um, we had talked earlier about how the uh, men's standard is so much tougher than the women's standard. And Peter, you were saying if it was like 222, you might see a bigger surge of men going after it like we saw the women with the 245. Is it a possibility that they would lower the men's and tighten the women's? Like make it slower. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, make the master for the women. Mm -hmm, Probably not. Yeah. But I think, you know, if they really did want equal fields, that's probably what they would do. They would have to, right? Well, they or they could make the women so much faster that it matches the men's, you know. Yeah, I think that's honestly the that was the inspiration for why I first started like putting words down in January or February was like, oh, wait, you know, if left to their someone's own devices, they just tinker with some math and, you know, try to even out fields. They could like not think that Atlanta wasn't awesome, but just sort of look past it and be like, how do we, and and you'll see it. I mean, it's, it's hilarious to me that it got, um, our piece got posted on let's run and it like, and really well-meaning, you know, like the founders there said like, Oh, we disagree with some of the sub points, but I think this is a really interesting charge. Um, and then, you know, some anonymous people are like, you know, 200 makes sense, but 400 makes no sense. And you're like, <laughs> this is totally random. You know, yeah. like, this is just, um, I said to someone like, there's never, you know, a shortage of people who want to tell us anonymously how it used to be. And like, that's, <laughs> I'm like, great, thank you. Well, so, um, yeah. And I think that touches on like, the. I think a lot of people aren't admitting that there's this part of them, which there is a part of me also that sees um, slowing the times or um, 
or expanding the field in any way takes away from the accomplishment of those of us who have qualified before. And to that, I say, I think it's worth the price. You know, like I'm certainly more than willing to sacrifice that accomplishment of mine if if I look at it that way in the name of the sport and in the name of like uplifting other people and making sure that, you know, the word of our sport, that there is a Olympic trials qualifier in every state in America, that there is like multiple in, you know, larger towns and cities, you know, that everybody has an opportunity, everybody in an, in a running community has an opportunity to know an Olympic trials qualifier. Yeah. And I think it gets to like the, the knit, it almost gets to like branding and um, what's memorable. Like Esther, you have accomplished things that are like amazing, maybe harder to understand. You have to know more about the sport. You know, it's like if you're like top 15 in the country, you're just like, wait, what? Uh, what? I mean, so it's, I like that you admit that because the OTQ is in some ways like a very um, almost an assumed achievement for you um, because yeah, of I certainly thing. took it for granted and, and the, oh, because God. of the other things that because I know the sport and Lindsay knows like that we know you've done but yeah when you get like it, part of the piece people ask you like but you have you qualified for Boston you know um, <laughs> these things that people know about so yeah oh, you're an um, no. <laughs> you qualify for Boston? Yeah, yeah. Big difference there, right? Um, okay, so this is what I was thinking. Uh, I was thinking this through, and um, I certainly, I know that the crowds in Atlanta were way bigger because, well, like you mentioned, all the families decked out in their shirts and excited to see their people running. But I, d- I definitely think there were still people like, myself and the group of girlfriends that I went with that were going to show up on that day regardless because the depth of the actual top contenders was so deep and that front pack was going to be so exciting to watch. So I think people like that were going to show up regardless, but that's, I mean, that's probably only what, like a, what, 30% of the spectators, you know, those are like the people that are like really into it because a huge number of people that were there were there to support their people. Um, so my question is, is like, if we tighten it by like three or four minutes, will that really change? Like how many people are as excited or, or show up? What, what do you think? I think there are a couple of factors here. Like Atlanta was a really great spectators course. Mm. Um, I think they were really welcoming to the, the people who came in for the race. They really made it the race accessible to not just family members, but people who live in Atlanta and know nothing about running were like pumped to get outside because they're like, what is going on? This is amazing. That was not the case in LA. Mm. I remember running the day before on the course and being like, I, there's no evidence that there's a course here at all. Like none at all. (laughs) And so, and there was no flyers. There's nothing around that says, Hey, there's a big race happening here tomorrow. You should come out and cheer. Nobody cared. And so um, I think that was a big help as well. Because like, if you can just get some people off their couches in Atlanta, that adds a lot to the atmosphere as well. And I actually know of people who did that. Like, they just were like, whoa, there's something happening outside. I'm going to go get my like stuff that I usually bring to a soccer game and like make some noise. (laughs) There was such a snowballing effect of like the Atlanta Track Club did such a good job. And then they got 
I mean, what I'm coming to understand is just how much work was done to make sure stories were told at a regional level about, Definitely. you know, men and women. Um, and those are those are fun stories to read, particularly like in today's media climate. You're like, oh, like this is a really positive story. Then you have so then you have all these people coming. Um, I mean, I did a shakeout run the morning of literally started because my I said to a text a friend like we should run the course just to check it out. It seems like it's going to be brutal. And then I posted it on Twitter, and then all these people are like, I would show up. And then Ben, someone said, well, the NAZ elite is doing a shakeout. You know, I can't decide. And I'm like, well, let's just join forces. So then we right. had this huge, like, caravan of just, like, amateurs running the course. There was a high school relay going on that morning, um, which I had, like, found out about. So there was just excitement on the streets, and this was, you know, three, four hours before the race went off. Um all these things, I think, play into what the weekend ended up becoming. So, but back to your question, Lindsay, because you mentioned, like, you were there because of the top 20 women. Yeah. And to that, I would say, well, the reason why the top 20 were as deep as they are is because of this history of the Olympic trials being an achievable standard for the women. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. more of us are staying in the sport. I mean, two of your favorite people to bring on are Roberta Groner mm -hmm. and Kira D'Amato. And I would say... I mean, they're both studs. Both of them were drawn back to the sport because of the Olympic trials marathon standard. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And they're both top, you know, they were both in that like top 10 to 20 mm -hmm. people. Carrie Dimoff, um, Carrie Dim Dimoff is a teammate of mine. She ran at Princeton. Um, she finished 20th at the trials. Oh, really? She's mom of two. Um, so she like, she had that classic thing of running in college, being somewhat banged up afterwards and then being like she like gave up on the sport a couple times she ran mm -hmm. at the track trials a little like years ago and was like you know i'm probably done but then she qualified for um she ran her first she qualified for la ran her first marathon at, in la and was like that was awful but then was like <laughs> you know maybe i'll continue she ended up making the doha team so she mm -hmm. was like i think the second woman um behind uh, roberta in doha and like just super inspiring. Um, so it's just, it's been, and then she finishes 20th. Um, and it's like, the, you just see how it all stitches together. Like she is many years older than some of the other women on the Bowerman team that I'm on. Um, but there was another woman who finished 22nd on the team, you know, like she yeah. sort of like is able to bring other women along and you're like, some of these women, if they keep at it, could really help America in different races. Yeah. And you next. just, you just touched on the like benefit of depth is that like if you have a teammate who's qualified for worlds or qualified for the Olympic trials and you're like, eh, I'm not sure if I can do it. But once you get to know that person, you realize that they're a real person and they're normal and that they have two kids and a job. And, you know, like you can be like, OK, well, I can keep up with her on this rep, you know, yeah. again, and that's where it starts. I also love the point about Roberta and Kira because my mind immediately when you said that went to Brittany Charbonneau who got 13th and Julie Conan who now is with NAZ Elite yeah. and those are both examples of women who I mean Brittany was 13th Julia Julie was is it Julie or Julia Julia I Julia I think Julia, Julia was 10th 10th yeah. place 10th place in yeah. the trials and like that all started from that like oh I could qualify for the Olympic trials so that point that you make is like 
spot on. Um, I want to read Ben Rosario's uh, retweet of, of the article, and I just want to hear your thoughts on it. Because when we started talking about recording this interview since then, so many people have commented in this like long list of, of conversation has gone on on Twitter. Uh, ben says he really enjoyed the piece and agree with the general principles. The atmosphere in ATL was electric with 250,000 screaming fans. That atmosphere and that number would not have been the same with a reduced field. Now let's bottle up that energy, sell it, and create a proper uh, prize purse. What exactly right. do you think he means by that? I'd love to know. So, okay, prize purse is a whole nother conversation. Um, but being able to sell it is one of the biggest arguments that we've been hearing. Um, is that, like, well, because it's part of the USOC, like, the Olympic Committee is is basically taking all of the revenue and you you can't do anything. You cannot sell any of the rights to sponsors because of their Olympic connections and that kind of thing. So, like, there is a lot of limitation on this. And so my mind has been like, well, I mean, we have a way of, like, working around things in the government these days. So uh, <laughs> let's just find a way to work around this. Like, can we not call it the Olympic trials and have a selection race? And somehow be able to actually have other sponsors and like grow the race in the way that we want to and sell it and be, you know, more have more autonomy over that. Because, okay, Peter's saying like maybe we're not even going to have the Olympic trials in four years because of finances. And there are basically every club in America is struggling for money. Um, so who's going to have the funds to even mm -hmm. put on an event like that if it means losing a million dollars? I mean, that's absurd. So if we can, I mean, maybe something could be born out of necessity. Yeah, I, I was just to explain that. I, uh, one of the most shocking things to come out of the Twitter thread response to our um, post was just that the financial strain of putting on the event mm -hmm. means that every um, organizing committee that has put one on has lost money, that it's been like they've looked back and appreciated what the event was but um they're not sure if they would do it again you know you say it's been 13 years since it's been in new york we could go back to new york city and new york Roadrunners has said like um we're not interested right now we we lose money and it's not what we're focused on the thing i wanted to highlight about ben um and the naz elite is like i am super biased i love the marathon it's the it's the event that i'm the best at relative to other events like i'm a total marathon junkie um but I think you've also seen that although NAZ has had success on the track, they've been able to like really capture fans' imaginations by their road running. Um, and so, you know, Scott Fobble finishes fourth on the track in the 10K, and that's amazing. But it's his run in Boston when he's like going to the lead that just blows people away. And it gets to what Esther said, like so many people run on the roads, just like from every pace out there. And so you go home from Boston, you turn on the TV and Scott Fobble's at the front of the race and then he's finishing top 10 and you think like, wow. And then Steph Bruce is like all over the world like doing great things. And you think this is amazing. Even if her relative times are like, um, you know, like, well, her, her track 10 K is quite good too. It, you know, it's, it's a more of a niche when you get on the track. Um, For sure. and so yeah. what NAZ has been able to do is like, I think Ben, they just talk a lot. They post a lot about like, we want to just keep trying more things that, um, that 
provide value to the fans and that then in return, you know, provide financial incentive to the athletes so they can make it a real pro sport. I love so, that. So, uh, on a, to touch on the his point about the prize purse. Yeah. I will say I have um, a personal uh, point in here that because I got passed by Katja Goldring in the second half of LA, I went from making $10,000 to $0. Mm. Um, I mean, she ran an awesome race and, but she, you know, 10th place was two minutes ahead of me. So it's not like, but you know, like you can't help but beat yourself up a little bit. You're like, maybe I should have gone out slower or something, you know, like, um, there's always going to be a little piece of you, but the fact that like 11th place at the Olympic trials makes $0 yeah. is kind of crazy. Um, and like, so it's funny because then I ran New York that year and I made sure that that was written into my clause was that if I finished 11th or 12th or something like that, then I would get like an extra little bonus. Good for because you. Because I also had top 10 only and it, it worked out. So, Good. Right. you know, like, cause I, I had a feeling I was going to get burned again. <laughs> Good for you. I'm so glad you did that. And like, yeah. I'm glad you said that on the podcast so that other developing athletes that might be like running their first New York or whatever, or whatever big race know that they can do that. Yeah. That you can write that in. That's so cool. Yeah. Thanks Dan Lilo for listening to me and uh, <laughs> talking to the, to Sam and, and David. Yep. That's awesome. You know, I was thinking about this and I, um, I was thinking like, you know, the biggest thing, you know, the biggest part of this conversation that I'm getting is that like, we want to grow the, the fan base of American distance running, right? Like we want to grow this sport. Um, and, and how do we do that? You know, the three of us are like super big running dorks. Like we love (laughs) running. We love watching and cheering for the races, but like, how do, how does any of this affect that average runner who isn't invested in, you know, I don't even know who the top 10 contenders are for the Olympic team, you know, like how do we get those people drawn in? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think Ben's point about like, if, if there was $150,000 for the win or something like that, like that might be a little bit more interesting to people. I mean, but even that's kind of pennies in comparison to other pro sports, you know, like it's not that big of a deal, but people do pay attention to that in Boston. They, they think that's a big deal and they're not even aware of all the rest of the money that's getting spent under the table or not under the table, but for appearance fees and that kind of thing. So right. it's like the person who wins is making a lot more than $150,000. I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, it's like, I do think that there's gotta be a little bit of that if other than like broadening the field, there's, there's also something to be said for that. I mean, I think the there's sort of expanding the ring and then there's sort of like jumping uh, the ring that we're in and then there's like jumping well outside of it. I think some of the things you're talking about, Esther, are those classic like how do you be like, there's $100,000 on the line um, and you're like, wow, okay, cool. Like who's going to do it? I think from a, just expanding their uh, fan base, a lot of the, I do look to the NAZ athletes who, you know, share yeah. storytell. They mm-hmm. like say, you know, Steph Bruce sells grit t-shirts and you're like, oh yeah, that's it. Like embodied. Um, she's just like, I try to return to my own mantra and you're welcome to buy a t-shirt. And you're like, yeah, I mean, why not? Um, it's, that's what makes it accessible for people who are, you know, they're still runners. Um, they're not like the average person on the street. Um, I- who's, you know, 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. I really admire the the major effort that NAZ has done with um, sharing their story. I think you know, I know that that's got to be exhausting and really hard to do at times, especially when things aren't going well. Um, but it's so crucial. And I have been thinking about this for, I don't know, 10 years or something. Like, how do we make people care about the sport? Well, people care about stories. Mm-hmm. You care about That's a race it. when you know somebody in the race That's it. and you don't feel like you know anybody unless they share their story. And so all the privacy that people have around their workouts and like, you know, Oh, I'm injured, but I'm not going to tell anybody because then I might not get this appearance fee. Well, you're not going to run well anyway. That's not the honest thing to do. Mm. Um, so I think being more upfront with everybody about what's going on and like the ups and the downs, I think, more, more and more people are doing that. And I think that's also been like a major reason why, you know, the sport has grown so much. I agree yeah, with that. I have friends who work in the putting on track meets in Portland, um, like the Portland track where there's some high performance meets and they, they feel pretty passionately that it shouldn't be on the athletes right now. It is sort of mm. on, it's very much on the athletes. Um, you know, there's a lot of quiet athletes that don't necessarily want to push out on social media, but in the moment we're in, um, it is a burden if, unless it comes naturally. So they think, um, but if you look to say the NBA, you don't just get to skip the post game press conference, Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, and, and a lot of that stuff is sort of just like, blah, 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 the same, but you know, there's a certain cream on top that like quotes make it out. And, um, so there's always some talking to the press, but um, I actually posted after Atlanta and I said, like, if you didn't really post about your buildup and then you finished middle of the pack or dropped out and you didn't post about your race, why are we pay? Why would a brand pay your salary? Like straight up. Yeah. What, like what? Hot why take. Do you I mean, it was, oh. I was a fired up and I, I mean, totally agree with you, Peter. That is one of my uh, biggest pet peeves as well is like, the people who share or no, what's even worse is when you share a big like pre-race post oh, yeah. and then you, there's like radio silence afterwards. Uh-huh. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like all that screams to me is shame. Honestly. Yeah. Like it's just really sad. Like if you can't, if, if you think that people only care about your highlights, then like you don't think people actually care about you. Yeah. Do you think that some of it is people just not wanting to leak to their competitors, though, that like, oh, I'm going to be an easy get this race? It's going to happen whether you say it or not. Yeah. If that's yeah. the truth. Yeah. I you mean, know, it's just, that's a, I, I would question. Yeah, I, I would totally respect if someone disagreed with me. I would just sort of say, like, it's 2020. Um, like Dathan Rittenhine, who I grew up as, a, you know, he's my same era, but he was still like a childhood hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, he went out with like, he hadn't been running before the race. <laughs> um, so you're like, well, okay, like, that's fine. You weren't, and then since then he's admitted it on podcasts and been like, yeah, that probably wasn't going to go. What so race are uh, you talking about? Oh, Atlanta. He, oh. he lined up for Atlanta and he hadn't run over five miles, I okay. believe. Uh, in the, and so you're like, okay, that's, but he, he was like on the latter half of his career. It's just like, right. yeah, Esther, when I go to someone's Instagram and think, oh, they had that pre-race post. Yeah. Um, but I missed how they did. Let me go check. And there's just the last photo is like of the singlet before. And you think uh, what I to me, sadly, it says is we know athletes are worth more than just the podium photo. But if you 
don't tell your story or get someone else to tell your story, you're letting the podium define your worth. Um, yeah. Thing like that's all that matters. That's and a great point. We know there's so. I love yeah. that. Yeah. It also like I'll book an interview before a race, and then like suddenly the person's like, "We're gonna do this later." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we. It's hard. And and I always know like if a, if an interview gets canceled before a race or something like that, I always know that it's because something's up, you know. And it's funny too, because like I think to your to in in their defense, if you actually are injured, yeah. And you don't want to sound like you're whining. For instance, like, um, I think that's what was going on with um, Gwen Jorgensen Mm. with Chicago. Like, she was sick. And she has, like, she still has a hard time telling people I was sick, Mm -hmm. you know, for the race. Because she doesn't want people to just, like, be like, well, you know. That's your excuse. Yeah, exactly. It was your second marathon or your first real marathon. And, like, and you're just a 237er. It's like nobody actually thinks that. Yeah. Come on. Like, and also it's okay for you to get sick and have a bad day. Like, um, and I know she knows that, but like, I think that's her reasoning for yeah. not admitting it before is because she didn't want to sound like she was whining or trying to like self sabotage or create excuses before she even raced. Yeah. Okay. So Art. now that it's, did you have a comment, Peter? Oh, no. It's okay. just, I get, I get that it's hard. It's their life livelihood and you know being in portland i'll come across the good and the bad i come we heard about shalane's workouts before she won new york you're like wait what were her splits like (laughs) someone's gonna get beat in new york and then she it's sort of like if she didn't win new york you're gonna be like how it's impossible she was in such good shape and then you also sort of see people who are banged up and i'm not i wouldn't think it would be easy um to post a lot about that sure sure no but for one i mean i really admire emily enfeld for okay. all that she has shared through all of her injuries just want to put a shout out there shout out to emily we love you emily yeah. uh she's just a positive like <laughs> force in the world and listen to her laugh all day yeah yeah the happy gal You've sat on the article for a while now. Everybody hopefully has gotten a chance to read it. If you haven't read it, go go read it. Go go catch up on the Twitter thread that we're talking about. I'd love to just hear, like, now that you've read other people's comments and, like, kind of sat with it for a little bit, what are your final thoughts on it? Oh, man. Okay, so one of the things that has come out is, like, uh, the first critique was that the uh, – removing the half standard is not popular. That's Mm, clear. Really? Um, Okay. So, and Peter's accepting fault for that one. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's fine. I mean, it also messes with the ranking and like, we'd have to convert and it's like, well, do they accept 800 meter times for the mile? No, they don't. So like, I think there's an argument there for sure, but it's not popular. So um, we'll, we'll go ahead and drop that one in the name of, uh, in the name of Molly Seidel. <laughs> you know, well, yeah. Saving the, the idea. Yeah. Cause it, it is different. You can't run a marathon every weekend. So it's like, yeah. Okay. Um, comment though. I love that she had to start like in the beat. She had to like start in the second wave back and then she got second place. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, she, yeah, she was ready to go. Yeah. I, I think I told her to go ahead and, and get ahead. Like, just just don't worry about it. Nobody's going to ask any questions. I listened to an interview with her, and she said that she had read online. Someone was like, oh, my, Molly Seidel's, like, just hoping to finish. And she's like, you're right. I, I am definitely hoping to finish. I, this will be my first marathon. And then some. Um, but other thoughts about what people have said. Okay, obviously, there. this is, like, just a concept that is not based in total reality of what the current status is with the Olympic Committee. Um, 
obviously there are a lot of problems. Not only are Olympic trials locations losing a lot of money, but the Olympics are losing a lot of money also. So like there's something broken with this system. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're the only ones who've caught on and we're not the only ones who are like, hey, maybe we should make some changes. So I'm hopeful that like, okay, maybe it won't happen in the next four years, but like something has to give. Um, It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I was left with a deep appreciation for the work that's been done. Um, I reshared a thread that just came out um, by Eli Hesh, um, just saying, wow, in hindsight, it's easy to assume Atlanta like just happened and yeah. like, take it for granted. Yeah. And now I'm realizing um, that a lot of the tweet replies from members of the team are like, when we had, we're sending an ambulance to mile 18 and then, you know, had to figure out this other stuff at the finish like there's a bomb squad somewhere else yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah so much was going on that um i think i would never want anyone to i don't think people have taken offense as though we're like scoffing at the work they did but it it gave me a deep appreciation for the work that they did and what it takes to put that event on um and then i think yeah there's been meaningful discussion around different formats um and all we're saying is um, if you if you landed anywhere in this realm, um, it it would probably be exciting. I mean, I think we had already mentioned that Lindsey Krauss said like, what about regional format that mm-hmm. allow me to race against the women who I know and respect, and if I pass them, it's awesome, and if they pass me, it means something. That's like a a regional um, a way of making meaning all over the country. So I think there's any number of formats that could be great. My honestly, my biggest fear is that, and why I started writing this months ago was just that like it's announced, it's a super small event, and everyone's like, okay, we'll just move on. Yeah. And you're just like, oh. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I think it's ha- I'm very uh, pleased to know that it's part of the conversation, and that uh, it sounds like there's a lot that's up in the air, but at least um, there's real consideration for what it could become. Yeah, totally. I I feel like even if everybody thinks our ideas are stupid, I'm just happy everybody's talking about them. I em. love that. So um, I'm not going to take it personally. I just yeah. wanted, I think Peter did a great job of opening the conversation at the right time and um, getting a lot of voices involved. Because honestly, like, I think there is a lot of support behind the idea of making it bigger, not just from runners themselves, but as a coach of people who've, you know, broken three three hours and been like, or women who've broken three hours and been like, oh, I don't even know what to shoot for anymore. Like what means anything? And She's gone on to run 252 because I'm like, well, I mean, just keep yeah. trying, chipping away. You never know where you're going to get. And that's that's ultimately what should drive us all. But it's nice to have a carrot there. And it definitely helps people run faster than they ever would before. I agree with that. And I, I, go ahead. No, you go ahead, I Peter. Just, I, just, I was just going to say that, like, at some point I step out of my own mind and think, like, are we still – this is so much time spent talking about this thing. But I'm like, well, it's my favorite thing. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so why? I guess it's on us. It's like, and it's our sport to foster, and so why yes. not um, speak up for what it could become? And I don't—I forget if it was before or after our previous call got cut off, but just like the idea that I get messages from women who are like close to the standard who have just said like, I hope they don't lower it. Like, yeah. I'm still dreaming about 2024 potentially. Um, you know, that's just just people around the country who are like part deeply part of our sport and have communities that care about them and you know just trying to make sure we're fostering all of that yeah the same person you just referred to she actually like 
said that she reread her article and then went for a run when she didn't really feel like it to begin I with. Love so, that. you know, like so I think it can, that's just a tiny little example of the type of inspiration that can obviously be caused by broadening the, the scope of the Olympic trials. Well, I love that you like everything you just said about how like I, we, this is how we felt. I don't care if people think some of the ideas are stupid because it's like, if, if you weren't talking about it, this conversation like all these people wouldn't have even been thinking about the fact that the USATF was like making these decisions right now. And if not for these kinds of articles, the excitement wouldn't be happening. I mean, one retweet, two retweets, three retweets, whatever, you know, you get people talking about fourth place on the message board. (laughs) (laughs) Let's run. (laughs) Um, And I just, I love that. And I, I think that that's a really important part of our sport is people talking about it. Now I have one last question. What can people like me, like podcasters do you know, I just have people come on and I interview them about their life. But like, what do you think could be an extra thing we could do to help push this forward and and bring it and um, cultivate this uh, bigger fan base with not just the running dorks like the three of us? You're already doing an amazing job. Like, seriously, I mean, people like you and Matt Chittum with Rambling Runner, like, I think, I mean, Tina Muir, everybody who is, I mean, as Peter just said, like you have, um, there's an onus on us runners to be willing to share, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then to maybe expand our platforms and actually share our story, but it's a lot more helpful and more comfortable for most of us to be interviewed. And, you know, it, I think you guys do a great job of not just sharing the actual, like, there's, it's important to talk about the actual running, but it's really important to also get back into people's stories. And I think you do a great job of that. So, um, just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I think like, yeah, people in positions like you, when you know, I would just say, keep understanding that new runner, because I, my favorite questions mm. are when a podcaster says to a pro or to someone like, so one thing we always get good reaction to, and you're like, oh, interesting. They have this like back channel. It, or the people who are new to the sport mm. always want to know is, and they say like X, Y, Z. And they, they pull that out of the athlete because athletes, you know, have gone on their own experience and they don't always know what to highlight. Um, yeah, we're in our own little a, bubble. Yeah, and so you're able to trans- build that bridge from, um, you know, just sending out a survey to people who are, you know, three, four, five-hour marathoners and say like, what would you want to know? Or what, what are your questions in the sport? And then to make that translation. I have people write me and go, I'm running through, I mean, a woman wrote me this morning and said, like, I'm going through a period of doubt about my running. I've had a bad workout or two. Have you written about this? Because mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I'm like, huh. Um, so I sent her a piece or two that I'd posted in the past. But, it, like, I wouldn't know that unless she asked. And I, um, you don't always know what can make the most meaning to the most people out there who are at all sorts of paces. That's good. Yeah, I know. I do sometimes wonder when I get super heavy on the pro side of things, if I, if the more casual runner, you know, when we get down to the nitty gritty of like super specific things with major marathons that someone that's a casual everyday runner or new to the sport might, some of this might go over their head. They might say, I'm going to go listen to this other, this other interview where it's, it's (laughs) more common language with running. Um, Do you know, yeah, like, uh, do you know Patrick Cutter? He's from Buffalo. I don't. Okay, so Patrick is totally ripped. 
he's a former football player. Okay. Um, and he, yeah, he's totally ripped. And so he has like 50,000 Instagram followers because, because he's ripped. big, bigger <laughs> people are like, he's ripped. I like looking at him and like, no way that he's run 235 now. And oh, like, wow. No way. And um, he ran well at Boston a couple of years ago. And people, my buddies who like had blown up were like, oh man, I remember when that dude blew by me. Um, <laughs> so like he speaks to you. I'm, I'm friends <laughs> with him. The lessons he's learned that he then shares out on his Instagram is like, hey man, like you can you can still lift weights and improve at running. And people are like, okay, cool. Um, where they look at me and they're like, yeah. I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> Um, are you telling like, me to have him on the show? Or... <laughs> he's really interesting. Yeah. He, and he's, and he's a coach and because you other guys, big guys reach out to him. Yeah. yeah. Other guys reach out to him and he's a McCurdy train coach okay. and he, um, and I know that he coaches other guys who also want to lift weights. Oh, that's and so like, cool. So like he has opened up this whole window that like those people are never going to reach out to me thinking I can translate for them because I haven't lived their experience. I love that. Okay. I'm going to. I'm going to put him on my list. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. He's a, he's a McCurdy coach. Is he? Yeah. Okay. That's so great. Yeah. All right. One last thing before we go. Peter, you have recently wrote a piece that Esther and I are going to convince you to record an audio oh, yeah. format. Share with everybody what it is so that they can go go read your piece. So I like we touched on earlier in this, I – spent two years chasing the OTQ and came within two seconds and came within a minute three times. Um, and so I've written a lot about my running in essays and then a lot on Instagram, but I spent the summer writing a, the longest piece I've ever written called the bubble of the dream, which is just describing the mindset in hindsight that I was this moment of my life I was in, um, and what it, the meaning that was made in pursuing this goal and how it changed. I say like it changed almost every one of my days, almost all of my relationships. Um, and it just provided this sense of drive and meaning to each of my days. And um, yeah, I'd love it if people check it out because it, I've loved the responses so far. And I think what I have been most heartened by is people saying, I mean, one guy wrote me and he said like, I'm gonna get choked up. He's like, I hope you don't give up on the dream, uh, your dream of 219, cause I'm not gonna give up on three hours and I hope you don't give up on yourself. Mm. And you're just like, that to me strings the through line between all different paces, all different types of runners, all different ages. Um, and by putting it out there, other people have said like, wow, I've never, I don't know if I'd have the guts to put that out there, but I really appreciate that you did. And it makes me think maybe I, I could. And so that's been pretty wonderful. And you're going to record yeah, it in definitely. audio format. And, and then I'm going to the... record it in audio form because I think it, it'll be much easier to consume that way. Get the runners to listen on their runs. Yeah, yeah. I think that is one of the most marketable things about our sport is that it is so relatable. Like the pros are going through the same self-doubt during their races as everyone else. It's not really – I mean, I remember beating myself up as uh, a – new like post-collegiate athlete being like oh my gosh molly huddle must be like a hundred times tougher than i am because she can run so fast and i eventually learned that like yeah she is tough as nails but it's more about her fitness and it's just that she's fitter than i am and we're actually going through all the same self-doubt and the all the same like struggles and it's not like anybody is superhuman and i think that's what 
we that's why sharing our stories actually does matter and it can relate to so many more people and once people actually know the top runners in the country they're going to care about watching races and it's going to end up it has to end up making more money for the sport that's awesome i love that if you're a top runner in the country listening to this right now share your story (laughs) please we want to hear it Well, Peter and Esther, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And I just appreciate both of your investment um, in the sport. So together, we're going to continue to raise the bar to get the fans more excited. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lindsay, for all that you do for the sport. You're doing so much more than we could ever. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And I I don't believe it's true. You guys are doing awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Great to meet, by the way. Yeah, I know. We have to do this again in one-on-one. Take care. See you guys. Bye. All right, friends. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Esther and Peter, for coming on the show. So fun to hear your thoughts on all of this. And I'm excited to hear what everybody else has to say and think about this topic. And I'm also excited to hear what USATF will ultimately decide. All right, friends, you can find me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter at lindsayhine. And you can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. Don't forget, if you're a parent or helping raise kids or know someone who is raising kids, please let them know about my new podcast, Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine, a sentiment I find myself saying way too much here at the Hine House. Why is everyone yelling? Um, Check that podcast out. We're 11 episodes in and we've got some really good conversations over there that have been extremely helpful to my own parenting journey and I'm hoping they'll be helpful to you as well. Um, All right. This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. You can find the Up and Running podcast with Lauren Floris and Abby Stanley, the Illuminate podcast, and of course, Why Is Everyone Yelling in Our Network. Make sure you check us out on Instagram. We're Sandy Boy Productions over there. Have a really great rest of your day. Thank you for being here.